Uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Let's give our attentive listening uh, to the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship, whether we are here in person or uh, live streaming from home. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you call our attention to yourself uh, so that we might receive from you something we cannot receive in the world, uh, your own truth, uh, your very own words, uh, the creator speaking to creation, uh, the savior uh, speaking to those who need salvation. Lord, give us ears to hear, uh, give us receptive hearts, soften our hearts uh, that we may hear you. We ask all of this in your son's name, amen. We're continuing our series in Revelation, and now we're moving into chapter uh, 7. And really, it's a continuation of the same vision we, we looked at in um, chapter 6. And this part of the passage, uh, more than last week's, and maybe more than any other passage in Revelation we've looked at so far, it's pretty technical, and it's theologically kind of dense. Um, you might feel like you're sitting in a seminary course um, today, at least for the next uh, 30, 40 minutes or so. Uh, and that's because this passage is one of those really great passages that encompass a lot. And with great passages come great responsibility to handle it with care and with diligence. Uh, it says in 2 Timothy 2, we are to rightly handle the word of truth. Which means there is a way to mishandle this. <laughs> there, there is a way to wrongly handle this too. Um, and depending on your handling of this text, therefore, or mishandling of the text, this could lead to vastly different interpretations of things. So it's important for us to do our due diligence and make sure we're being faithful uh, to, the, to the scriptures. I've, I've made a judgment call, and I've decided to focus most of our sermon today on explaining to you from the scriptures the meaning of the number 144,000, because the interpretation of this, or the misinterpretation of this, um, have ties to all sorts of theological confusions and even heresies. Uh, there's surprising, uh, surprisingly a lot of takes on this number 144,000. Jehovah Witnesses have a take on this. Uh, they think it's Jehovah Witnesses um, 
ever since the day of Pentecost till now. Mormons have their take on this. They believe the 144,000 represent their, their priests uh, in the Mormon temple. Surprisingly, Muslims have a take on this. Um, they believe that they are, they're the uh, companions of Muhammad during his day. And what they all have in common is that they all take this number, 144,000, to be a literal number, a literal count of some group, some exclusive group of people. Now, to make it slightly more complicated, <laughs> Christians have different takes on this. Our brothers and sisters in Christ have different takes on this. The most popular take among American evangelicals is that this is also a literal number of uh, ethnic Jews, Israelites, who will be saved in the end uh, by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And this happens separately from uh, what they consider to be uh, the rapture of Christian believers. So after what they consider to be the rapture, they believe this um, salvation of 144,000 ethnic Jews will take place. <clears throat> Let me just put our cards on the table to start off with and tell you right now, um, we disagree with that interpretation. We in the Reformed tradition, the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, in the PCA, we disagree with that interpretation. We do not take this number to be a literal number. And I'll explain what that means. And I, I wouldn't be saying that if I'm not going to try to make a good biblical case for it. But that's just so you know, from the get-go, our position is considered to be the minority position um, compared to what's popular out there in, among American evangelicalism. Um, let me use an illustration as a way of outlining our sermon today. Uh, imagine yourself going on a hike, and it's a theological hike on a theological mountain, all right? And the first thing you encounter as you go up this mountain are the trees. You see a lot of trees, a lot of trees, okay? Most of your hike will consist of looking at the trees. And then at last, when you reach the top of the mountain, you're gonna see what? The forest, right? The, the beautiful collection of trees. You see the forest and you take in the view, you take in the grandness of everything, the beauty of everything. You take in the sight. And then you proceed to walk back down the mountain and go home, right? That's usually how a hike works. Uh, you, you walk your way up to the mountain, um, observing everything around you, the little things, get to the top, see the big picture, and then you go back home. Right? So that's our outline today. Our first point will be seeing the trees, and that's seeing the details and the contextual clues that point us to the meaning of the number 144,000. And that's what we'll spend more time on today. And then once we get to the top of the mountain, we'll see a, a grand picture grand biblical theological meaning we get from this number, 144,000. And what God is telling us, not just from this text, but perhaps from Genesis to Revelation. What is he saying? And then, lastly, we'll do what we do after a good hike, make our way home, uh, back to the day-to-day -day life, and that is uh, an application. An application for you to take home with you after all this, all right? So, point number one, seeing the trees. Point number two, seeing the forest. Point number three, taking home something with you for the day-to-day -day life. All right, point number one. Let's look at the trees. Let's look at the details and the contextual clues surrounding this number. Okay, here's one. Um, a very good question to ask whenever, whenever you're trying to discern the contextual clues in the passage is, what was the passage that came just before this passage? Okay. We read last week in chapter 6 that Jesus' second coming will consist of a terrifying 
arbitration of all things, the revealing of all things, and therefore the judgment of all things. And all the kings and emperors and rulers, and both the rich and the poor, will run to the mountains and try to hide. Uh, but w- when they're inevitably found out, and when everything's revealed, and, and God is judging everything righteously and perfectly, they'll cry to the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. It is so terrifying that they were crying out to the rocks, crush us and kill us right now, so we won't have to face that, <laughs> the, judge, the judgment of the Lamb. But is that how chapter 6 ended? No, it didn't just end with that description of a terrifying judgment, but with the question. Do you remember that? It ended with a question. What was the question? Four words. And who can stand? Who can stand before that judgment and not cower and run into hiding? Who can stand before it? That was the question. The last four words of chapter 6. Okay. Now, why was the vision in chapter 6 given to the church then, or to anyone? The question tells us. It's so that the hearer would search out for the answer to that question. The, the, most, the most important question we can ever ask, who can stand when the judgment of the Lord comes. Who can stand with their back straight, chin up, confident on the day of judgment? When the earth quakes, sun becomes black, full moon becomes like blood, stars of the sky fall to the earth, fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And whether that's metaphorical or literal or a mixture of the two, right? still pretty terrifying. Who can stand before that? Will you be able to stand before that? Do you have the confidence to stand before that judgment when it comes? That's the question we were left with in chapter 6. And then we get to chapter 7. So let's think contextually. What are we being led to to, to see? There is now in chapter 7, in our passage today, angels who hold back the four winds of the earth. By the way, that could be a close tied to the four horsemen that we had learned about previously, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then, verse 2, another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who who had given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144 thousand so looking at that number in context right looking at the contextual clue what we know is that these are the ones who can answer that question at the end of chapter six in the affirmative we can stand why because we have the seal of god we can stand before this judgment back straight chin up confident because we have been sealed by god himself uh, this is echoing the same thing that Paul encouraged the, the Ephesians with uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. He says there, In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Those sealed with the promised Holy Spirit are those who have believed in Jesus upon hearing the gospel and now promise the inheritance until they acquire possession of it. Okay. Well, when do you acquire possession of it? 
this inheritance in the kingdom of God at the end of the world, right? In other words, the end of the world for, for those who are in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, is not a day of dread. It's a day of reward. It's your payday. It's a day of celebration. Because you're deserving? No, because you've been sealed by the grace of God and his salvation. So if you're a believer of Christ and his gospel, then you were sealed. And in fact, it's really because you were sealed by God first that you even came to believe. We love because he first loved us. And if you have this seal, Paul is saying, judgment day is not the day you run from and hide from. It's the day you stand before the Lord and you worship him. You enjoy him. You delight in him. You stand confident before him. At the end of the world and at the beginning of the new world, uh, you don't have to hide. You don't have to cower. Not if you have been sealed by God. That's what 144,000 is about. The people who are sealed by God standing confidently before God at the end of the world. All right, but what about this list of the sons of Israel and this repetition of the list of 12,000 from the 12 tribes? Because that seems to be narrowing in on only one select group of people. Okay, so let's look at more trees. We're still, we're still hiking up, all right? More legwork to do. Notice, first of all, um, this is repetition of numbers 12 and combined with or multiplied by the number 1,000, right? The number 144,000 is a combination of 12 times 12 times 1,000, right? So when you approach this contextually, the question that we can ask is, when, where else do we see these numbers in the Bible? And, and how are they used in the Bible? Where do we see this kind of repetition of the number 12? And where do we see the number 1,000 and how it's used in the Bible? Um, we actually have a lot of clues within the book of Revelation itself. That's very helpful. The 144,000 people here are mentioned again in Revelation 14. And the usage there makes it so clear. Uh, this is not a literal number, in my opinion, uh, that this is a symbolic number. You know why? Because it says in Revelation 14 that these 144,000 are, quote, those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These 144,000 are those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. And if you want to take the 144,000 people in chapter 7 literally, then you have to take whatever it says about them in chapter 14 literally, which means this very exclusive group of people who get to withstand the judgment of God at the very end of the world are male virgins only. Can we just agree that that's a very bad take on this? Okay. Uh, nowhere does the Bible say that virgin men are more privileged than other demographics. Uh, that's just so obviously silly. And if you teach that as a doctrine, it's dangerous. What does this mean? What, what is this description in Revelation 14? It's a symbolic description of God's people who have remained faithful to their spiritual bridegroom, Christ. That's what the virgin metaphor is about. Jesus himself used faithful virgins as a parable, a metaphor for the church. So, so this is making a lot more sense when you consider that and, and contextualize it and understand to mean a symbolic representation of those who have repented of their unfaithfulness, repented of their spiritual adultery and idolatry, and have vowed their faithfulness to Christ. If you, 
unless you're ready to take what it says about 144,000 in chapter 14 literally, you should not take right, uh, what it says about them in chapter 7 literally either. Here's another really important series of numbers to consider. The same numbers, 12,000 and 144,144 appear again later in Revelation 21. And let me just give you a quick summary of that. You can turn there if you like, but let me just quick give you a quick rundown. There in Revelation 21, when John sees the new heaven and new earth, an angel brings him to New Jerusalem, the city of God coming down from heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And it says that the city is 12,000 stadia long, surrounded by a great wall that measures 144 cubits tall. Okay. These are not at all realistic physical uh, measurements of, of, of a city that a human that uh, people can build, much less for people back then. 12,000 stadia is close to 1,400 miles. 144 cubits is more than 200 feet. Um, it's not a realistic physical literal size by any means, but it it would represent something massive, something therefore inclusive, and something also global in scale. Um, the numbers there appear to be symbolic in representing the totality of the kingdom of God, the wholeness of the kingdom of God, 12,144. And even more interestingly, uh, it also says there that the city had 12 gates on which are written the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel and 12 foundation on which are written the names of the 12 apostles. There's 12 and 12. Now, how would the first century Christians first receiving this letter from the Apostle John right, in Asia Minor have received this and understood this? especially after the physical temple in Jerusalem had fallen. This would have communicated to them that since the, since the new city of God, new Jerusalem is coming, put your hope in that city, in the new Jerusalem that's coming. Yes, your, your, your ethnic, your nationalistic city was just demolished. But your hope isn't there. Uh, your hope is here. It's coming at the end, out of heaven from above. It's the new Jerusalem. And guess what? When that kingdom comes, you'll not only see 12 tribes of Israel there, those who were originally part of Israel, but those who were not originally part of that 12 tribes of Israel as well, those represented by the 12 apostles. They're so integral to the kingdom of God, they they make up the foundations of the city of God. So symbolically speaking then, And contextually speaking, the kingdom of God is not made up of 12, but 12 times 12. So when you place these clues side by side with the the 12 tribes in in our passage today, it's it's most probable that this is not a literal list of literal number of, of Israelites. It's not a nationalistic or ethnic reference. It's a symbolic and spiritual number that represent all of God's people who have been sealed by God, who will enter into the new Jerusalem at the end of the world. Commentators have also noted this, right? Even if you just look at the 12 tribes in our passage in chapter 7 today alone, you already get the hint, this is not at all strictly talking about ethnic Israel, national Israel. Um, This list in chapter 7, as it turns out, is not like the list you'll find in the Old Testament in Genesis. It's been significantly revised or updated I would even say it's upgraded. Um, 
it has here names of those who had committed grievous sins who should have been left out and disinherited. Uh, it includes children born out, uh, out of concubines and not legitimate wives, uh, concubines of Jacob rather than Leah and Rachel. It includes Joseph's son Manasseh, who was conceived by Joseph's Egyptian wife, a Gentile. It's also noticeably uh, removed the tribe of Dan. And, and that's, Dan's a fine name. That's okay if your name is Dan. <laughs> uh, the, the tribe of Dan were later notorious in Israel's history for leading the northern kingdom into idolatry and apostasy. What's the point? Looking at this list, which is very different from the original list, you see the point here is not to highlight the Jewishness of this list, but to highlight first how outsiders have now been counted as insiders. Gentiles are counted in. And two, uh, those who have chosen idolatry and apostasy have been left out. Even if they were physical descendants of Abraham, even if they were originally Israelites, because of their idolatry and apostasy, they're left out. But for Gentiles, because of their faithfulness, they're included in. I, I think this is pretty convincing that, that the 144,000 here, therefore, are not, not about ethnic Israel, national Israel, but about both Gentile and Jewish believers of Christ who have been sealed by God, by his grace, and who will stand on the day of judgment and enter into the city of God. This is a symbol, this 144,000 is a symbol of the most complete list of such assembly, gathering of God's people. The number 1,000, by the way, since, since the 12 and 12 are multiplied of 1,000, is used in, especially in the Old Testament, as a number that means completion or God's inclusion of a multitude of people, uh, a, a, just a generous amount of people. Uh, like we just heard in our call to worship today. I don't know if you caught it in our call to worship. It says there, he remembers his covenant forever for a thousand generations. Thousand generations. And, and that means he will keep his promise to an innumerable, immeasurable, like amazingly gracious amount of people. That's what that means. All right, so 12 times 12 times 1,000. We even have reference to 144. Those are the, these are the trees. These are the contextual clues that we have to take into account as we look at this, this passage and this number, 144,000. There's more, but I think that's enough legwork for one Sunday morning, all right? Um, and I think you should feel at this point kind of like, like how I feel after I get on top of Stone Mountain, um, a little out of breath, a little tired, a little sleepy. But now we're getting to the good part where you're, you're about to take in the view, all right? So hang in there, right? Um, now let's look at the forest. That's the second point. What is the big picture? Um, the operating question for us when it comes to seeing the forest in the Bible is this, at least in the, in the topic that we're addressing today, it's this. Biblically speaking, when you take the entire Bible into consideration then, who are the true Israel of God? Right. Who, who gets to be included here in this list? Okay. Who are the true offspring of Abraham? Okay. The forest is, is the answer. So, so let's start here. Consider this. Consider how repeatedly, time and time again, it's stated in the New Testament and foreshadowed in the Old Testament that Gentile Christians will be counted as part of the true Israel of God. From the very moment God called Abraham, 
he said, as he was establishing his covenant with him, he will be a father of not one, but many nations. So from Genesis already, uh, we know the offsprings of Abraham will not be limited to one national entity. Keep that in mind. Abraham was promised he'll be a father of many nations, not one. All right, then who are counted as offspring of Abraham if it's not just one nationality? It's not a passport that tells you. It's not a DNA test that tells you that you are offspring of Abraham. Then what is it? Uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, it is by faith alone that you're counted, identified as true offspring of Abraham. It says in Romans chapter 2, a Jew is not one outwardly by circumcision, but inwardly by the Spirit. And therefore, not all who belong outwardly and physically to Israel are counted as true Israel. Romans chapter 9, it is those who are of the promise, not children of the flesh, but children of the promise who are counted as offspring of Abraham. Not all who are of Israel are truly Israel. He says that in Romans 9. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 9, do not presume to say to yourself, speaking to the Jews, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. It's not at all about being part of this physical ancestry or, or descendants. You must be spiritually born again as a child of God to belong to this Abrahamic covenant community. Paul writes to the Galatians, the Gentile Christians in Galatia, and refers to them as the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. And I think most definitively, he says in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Christians, that's what it means. You belong to Christ. Christians, you are Abraham's offspring. This is the grand redemptive plan of God from Genesis to Revelation to bring into his household a multitude of nations and tribes and languages and peoples. That's the forest. That's seeing the forest because of the trees, not, not despite the trees. It's consistent with the trees, isn't it? What we see contextually, this is always true. Whatever you see on the contextual, like micro level, when you look at all the scriptural clues, it should harmonize with whatever grand macro level theological conclusion you come to. Okay. Meaning, uh, you, you, can't, you can't simply um, pick out one verse and come to a big theological conclusion. You gotta look at all the clues and when you look at all the clues, you've got to come to some harmonious theological conclusion that harmonizes with the rest of Scripture as well. And, and here's another very important theological big picture implication that emerges from this as well. Okay, this is why the forest is really important. It helps us get rid of this idea that any people group, any nationality can be saved purely because they are ethnically and nationally of a certain group. Right? We know that's false. I'll say that's a heresy because it compromises people's salvation. You shouldn't use that word lightly. Um, but when it comes to this, because it compromises people's salvation, I'll call that a heresy. Salvation is not justification by race alone. It's justification by faith alone. And so this should also correct for us this false notion 
but very prevalent notion that's that's out there um, that the Jewish believers, the Israelites, and the Christian church are two completely different entities with, with sort of two deferring salvation plans and timelines. Um, they're not. If, if, if anyone's saved, according to the Bible, if anyone is to be saved, they must be saved by through faith, through faith in God alone. Now, when I say that or other Reformed Presbyterian pastors say that, when Pastor Kevin say that, uh, we're bound to get misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, as if as if there is some agenda here to replace national Israel, to to undermine their national identity and significance. That's not at all the case. First of all, this is not a national matter. This is a spiritual matter. We're not talking about national Israel. We're talking about spiritual Israel. And if you don't take that distinction seriously, uh, you have a bigger problem than replacing national Israel. You're replacing Christ and his words. His separation between the sheep and the goats. His separation of those who are truly saved and those who are not truly saved. Those who are uh, children of the flesh and children of the promise. We're not talking about getting into physical Jerusalem. We're talking about getting into new, the new Jerusalem, the spiritual city coming out of heaven down to earth. That's, that's the first thing I say. Here's the other thing I will say. Here's my case. Um, I really don't think, and I still haven't heard a good answer to this, I really don't think you can rationally make sense of the distinction between Jewish believers who are Israelites, Jewish believers in Christ who are Israelites, and the Christian church, given that the Christian church, when it was founded, was made up almost entirely of Jewish believers who are Israelites. The first Christians were Jews. The first church fathers were, were Jews. The first disciples of Christ were Jews. The church was originally Jewish. How do you draw this hard line then and separate these to be two different entities, Jewish believers of Christ and the church? When Jesus said to his disciples, when you guys are in conflict with one another and you can't resolve it on your own, then bring it to the church. And if they don't listen to you, then the church should treat him as a Gentile who doesn't know God. When Jesus said that, none of the disciples turned to Jesus and said, um, Jesus, what's a church? That sounds kind of Gentile-ish, right? <laughs> Nobody said that. We have the synagogue and the temple. What's, what, what in the world is a church? Nobody said that. Why? They knew exactly what Jesus meant by the church. The church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means called and assembled people of God. It's the identical word used in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew, it is kahal, called and assembled people of God, used for Israelites as they assembled and gathered at Mount Sinai. Ekklesia is the kahal. Ekklesia doesn't replace the kahal any more than mommy and daddy replace amma and appa. Right? These are just same things in different languages. So when you, when you look at this passage and you think, am I, am I part of the true eternal Israel of God, the spiritual Israel of God, the, off, the true offspring of Abraham, your answer ought to be, if I am Christ, then I am of these people. I am of the 144,000. Does that make sense? If you are Christ, you are in this list. If you are ecclesia, you are the kahal. That's the big picture. 
Go home sometime today and, and read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and on. And, and just read there. I think it's the most beautiful summary of this of how through faith in Jesus Christ, the commonwealth of Israel is, is no longer limited to those who are physical descendants of Israel, that God has brought down all walls that divide Jews and Gentiles in this way, but built a new, new foundation on the prophets and apostles, one household of God and one dwelling place for the Holy Spirit and one man out of the two. It's a beautiful overview of this forest. So check out Ephesians 2. I'll, I'll add this to... Um, for, for the big picture. Um, next week, when we get to the rest of chapter 7, which, which Pastor Kevin will be preaching on, you'll see there's a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, language, worshiping God. So some have argued, okay, since the, the, the latter half of chapter 7 gets into the, the description of these multitude of people from every nation, tribe, language, the first part of chapter 7 must be about some other group, Right? And I can see the temptation there to, to, to interpret that that way. So we're talking about all the nations over here, the later half of chapter 7. The first half, therefore, clearly is talking about the ethnic Jews. Right. Not so fast. Uh, remember a couple of things. One, Revelation does not progress chronologically in this sort of linear fashion. It does not. It's, it's a, there are segments and divisions of, of various visions that go back and forth in chronology. And remember the frequent usage of recapitulations in the book of Revelation. Remember what recapitulations are, right? Uh, it's like the, the lion and the lamb. They're not describing two different things. They're certainly not describing some chronological evolution where the lion morphs into a lamb and back to, no. They're recapitulations of the same person, the same entity at the same time. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. So what we're looking at today is, is and, and combined with what we'll learn next week, are they're recapitulations of the same thing. They're the people of God. Okay. Here we're described as the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Next week's passage will be described as a multitude of nations uh, gathered from all the nations, all the tongues, and all the peoples, and all the tribes. And like most recapitulations, um, these two visions highlight different aspects of the same thing, right? Like the lion highlights something about Jesus. The lamb highlights something about Jesus. Our passage today highlights what God has done for us, that, that he sealed us. The next passage you'll you learn from next week, you'll see what we as people respond to what God has done for us. And that's what you'll hear from Pastor Kevin. All right. That's the big picture. Now let's make our way down. And as, we, as we're about to go home, let's take something with us. Um, I have one word for you to take home. And that's confidence. Confidence. Confidence to stand on the day of judgment. Because you have been sealed by God. Right? Christians. Be confident. Right. Straighten your back, chin up, and be confident. Because you have been sealed by God. Do not be afraid. Uh, think of the comfort this would have provided the early church as they first received this. 
having read chapter six and, and now moving on to seven, the kind of comfort this would have given them, especially as they, as they read chapter six and sort of inevitably matched some of these things in their minds with the persecution that they were suffering during the first century. Maybe they thought the judgment of God is here, it's falling upon us. Uh, maybe they thought we're, we're being condemned by God. We're abandoned by God. But here God shows us through chapter 7 and through this list, this upgraded list than the one in Genesis, that what should reassure us was never supposed to be our circumstances and our experiences. God never intended for us to draw confidence from how am I doing? Uh, How am I feeling? How am I dealing with life, managing my home, my children, my job? He never did. He never intends for you to draw your confidence from these things. Why? He only wants you to draw your confidence from one source and one source only, and that is the seal of God upon you. God's intention for us in this vision is that we would fix our eyes on our God who is able to save us and seal us to the end, even when the earth is quaking. Even when the sky is rolled up like a scroll, the gale is so strong, it's knocking down every structure that's on the ground. We can remain confident in Him as we transfer all of our trust, all of our confidence away from my feelings, my experiences, my obedience, even my faith. Because we're so good at putting our faith in our faith. How good is my faith? How strong is my faith? How transferring all of that over to Christ so that my faith is not in my faith, but in Christ. How strong is he? How good is he? How gracious is he? How kind is he? How merciful is he? How confident is he in his ability to save me? This is what God wants us, I believe, to take home with us. It's not more knowledge. It's not more theological truth. It's this seal upon you to give you confidence. It's like the wedding ring that a bridegroom places on his bride to seal her as his. Well, you, you, you do know that this, this ring on my finger, uh, this is not my ring. This is my wife's. This is her seal upon me to say, I'm hers. And that ring on Lynn's finger, the more expensive one, it's not her ring. That's mine. It's my seal upon her to say, this is, this is my way of claiming you as my own. And God has given you his seal, and that is the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will never remove that from you because I'll love you to the end. I'll love you forever. And that's what we are to take home with us. In fact, that's, that's what we are to receive from God every time, any time we open up his word. Every time we open up the Bible and meditate on the word, we should get this echo of his love. I have sealed you for myself. Nothing can separate you from my love. So let's not look at this number 144,000 like it's just a literal, literal number to decode and thereby miss the person who is sending us a very clear message. I love you and I've placed my seal upon you. Would you turn to me? Would you listen to my voice? 
and put your trust in that voice. Uh, and would you stand by my side? Because if you're willing to stand by my side, you'd be able to withstand anything, even the end of the world. This is God's message of love to you, 144,000. Forget, forget I love you, 3,000. Here's God saying, I love you, 144,000. <laughs> there's no greater source of confidence than this. There's no greater, there's no greater flex than this. For, for someone to be able to say, God, is, God has placed his wedding ring on me. We therefore then can take this, walk into the world with our backs straight, chin up, confident, walk into every situation, any location, any relationship, any conflict, any problem, any trial, any, confront any guilt, any sense of shame, and withstand it all. Because if you can withstand the day of wrath, you can, if you can withstand the end of the world, which is what God promises you, you can withstand anything. You can overcome anything. Does this confidence come from somehow knowing, oh, yeah, if I have Jesus, no suffering and trial can touch me? No. It's knowing that no amount of suffering and trial will separate you from the strength of your Savior from the love of your Savior? Does this confidence come because, oh, my heart is so unshakably set on God? No. It's because His heart is so unshakably set on yours, on your heart. Um, every time you're tempted to look at your life, your performance, your failures, your faith to draw your confidence Look away and, and take a long look, a hard look at the performance and achievement and the faith of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for showing us our, our true comfort in, in chapter 7, after showing us our true problem in chapter 6. Um, you will bring your ultimate judgment. You'll bring your justice, and that's a good thing. That's what, that's what makes good and evil meaningful. It's that at the end of the world, every wrong will be made right. We need that. But we also tremble before that. It is terrifying to know every thought, word, and deed of ours will be revealed arbitrated, judged, rightly, and justly. But God, what a reassurance we have that Jesus paid it all. That though our sins were like crimson, we've been washed white as snow. We've been put on the white robe. We've been claimed forever as the bride of Christ, and his seal, his ring is now upon us forever. What a joy, what a comfort. God, we confess we forget this too often and we turn to ourselves for this, this confidence we need in this world. Um, we look too often at ourselves and fail to look to you. Lord, help us to make it our aim to remember you. For every one look at ourselves, help us to take 10 looks at Christ. And so, Lord, may we walk into our day-to-day 
hour to hour, minute to minute with him. So that at the end of each day, we'll remain standing with him. Just as we will, even at the end of the world. So thank you, Lord, making us for making us stand not by our power, but yours. Thank you that our confidence is not in our strength, but yours. Not in our goodness, but yours. Not in our faithfulness, but yours. Lord, you're so good. And your scripture reveal that to us. Help us to see it and help us to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.